from GreenBiz Group. Welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here at 350 Franco Gawa Plaza in downtown Oakland, California. On today's edition, Solar City says aloha to Hawaii, the inconvenient truth about an inconvenient truth, and can you ever really retire from sustainability? We're enjoying our golden years this week on 350. It's May 27th, 2016. Welcome to this week's edition of Green Biz 350. I'm here as always with Green Biz Senior Editor, Lauren Hepler. Hey, Lauren. Hey there. How's it going? How's it going? Good. You're excited about the big weekend ahead? I am. Long weekend, which will be nice. We've been crazed with our 30 under 30 coming up after the holiday, so yeah. stay tuned for that. And next week is not going to be anything slower. Lots going on then. Well, you, got, you got any plans? Uh, for the weekend yeah. or for next week? Yeah. Um, I am just planning to bask in the long weekend glory. Nice. Yeah. Uh, going to Bottle Rock. Oh, you are? Yeah, yeah big nice. uh, music festival up in Napa. Uh, see uh, all the cool kids and, you know, have some fun. And... Who's the headliner this year? Uh, well, I don't know. The headliner. I mean, Stevie Wonder. Oh, that, uh, that's a pretty good one. You know, it's pretty good. There, but there's, a, there's a whole whole list of them. So I'll let you know. Um, but uh, enough about us. Let's talk about sustainable business and the Week in Review. This week kicked off with a big milestone in the world of sustainability, and that was the 10-year anniversary of the release of Al Gore's famous Academy Award-winning climate change documentary, An Inconvenient Truth. Our Green Biz Vice President and Senior Analyst John Davies took an interesting look at that uh, by surveying some actual sustainability executives today about how the film sort of shaped their careers. But I'm curious, Joel, um, do you remember the first time you saw the film? Well, I, I I do remember the first time I saw the film, but I actually saw uh, the former vice president uh, do a presentation in 2004. Actually, Jan I looked it up January 15, 2004, at the Beacon Theater in New York City um, on a day where the temp the high hit 18 degrees, and and that became at the you know in the in the right wing media kind of a point of derision. Al Gore is talking about uh, uh, climate change and hell is literally freezing over. Yeah, uh, but um, throw a snowball in Congress. All that. <laughs> exactly. That that was just uh, the first of many such hijinks to come. But what was interesting, I mean, he was he was really as a dress rehearsal or one of I'm sure many he he did. He was still reading it off a teleprompter. Um, which he had set up in the in the middle of the theater and uh, was uh, doing a lot of the lines that came out in the movie. So he was field testing this, and it was really interesting to see, uh, really his, in some ways, his coming out party of 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 being vocal on this topic because he'd only been out of office for well three years at that point exactly, um, and was uh, you know still finding his voice and mending fences down in Tennessee. So yeah, and and then uh, I saw him do it again. Uh, I think it was uh, in Hollywood, actually, with uh, uh, Lawrence Bender, the uh, producer, and um, um, Guggenheim. I forget his first name. The uh, the director, and um, and I think Arnold Schwarzenegger. But it was so I've, I've watched it a couple times where he's uh, he's either given it or been there when it's been shown. And um, you know, it's it's uh, well, it was really interesting to get the reaction of the people that John talked to because I, I you know they both. 
found it inspiring and motivational and in some ways catalytic to their careers. But I was left with a little wishing there was a little bit more hope. What do you mean by that? Well, I mean, it was doom and gloom and, and it sort of gets you depressed and you understand the problem and certainly, but it wasn't very empowering. And, you know, doom and gloom isn't that empowering. And even uh, I saw uh, Gore uh, on stage at um, uh, Salesforce, as you know, uh, Salesforce.com has a huge 150,000 per person event in San Francisco every year called Dreamforce. And I guess it was in wasn't might have been 2015 uh, I saw him on stage and and he he gave a sort of a modified version of his slideshow and he he actually said uh, I'm, I know this sounds doom and gloom but I'm going to leave you with some hope <laughs> I said oh great he's developing some hope and and it turned out to be about a two so it seemed like a minute or three at most on solar energy and the you know declining price and the rise of electric cars it's sort of Again, you know, something most people, at least certainly around here, would know if, just by reading the, the paper. But it still doesn't feel like this stuff we can do, like, you know, as, which is what we talk about at Verge, this empowering the technology and the capabilities that can actually solve the problem. So it left me wanting. It's interesting because I do remember seeing the film and it, for me at the time being pretty young then it's sort of a little bit of like a wake up call I think so hopefully it serves some purpose there and I think sort of in the film world it's interesting now to see more films that are more solutions oriented there's one coming out I think just next month called Time to Choose that's by another Academy Award winning filmmaker um, and then our friend Peter Bick has done a couple of movies in this realm as well yeah. right so it, it's in, been interesting to see how that's evolved yeah I mean there there are some and, and I think uh, um, Peter uh, Bick uh, uh, gave, uh, you know, he, this was the movie about climate change, even if you don't believe in climate change. It was, yeah. it was solutions oriented. Trying to depoliticize it. Interestingly, at that time, um, I did a little project for, uh, funded by, mostly by Gary Hirschberg, who was the founder of Stonyfield Farm. And it came out just about the same time. It was a four or five minute little uh, mockumentary about how we saw it from uh from the year 2056, about looking back 50 years of how we solved the problem. Um, hmm. It was called uh, 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 Climate Colon a Crisis Averted. It's online. I will set. We'll put a link to it. Yeah. It's, it's sort of it's a mockumentary, sort of fun, and and but it was about how we went back. Uh, look back at how we did it, hmm. and we'll, we'll do we'll put a link on the on the page. Um, so, uh, but uh, I talked to John um, uh, the other day and and asked him. Uh, just to reflect a little bit about his some of what he heard from um, some of the people he talked to and his own thoughts about it. And here's what he had to say. Well, what I found out was that it was very inspirational and started a number of careers. And, and I remember with a couple of the members of our Green Biz Executive Network, it really inspired them to get into the profession of sustainability. What's your story? What did you first uh, know or learn or see an inconvenient truth? Well, I don't recall exactly when I saw the movie. I mean, I remember seeing it in a theater, but it it had an impact. But I'd already been in sustainability, so I knew a lot of what Al was talking about. But the real impact was when I went to visit my mom in upstate New York, and I went to Walmart, and there was a copy of the DVD packaged with a Philips light bulb. And I just thought, you know, I won't say that that was a light bulb moment, but it really reinforced how business has a chance to communicate about this and make change and sometimes subtle change so 
people change their light bulbs. They may not have actually known what they were doing to reduce energy use, but it was a great uh, teaching moment, I think. So when you look back, I think back a decade and or look to where we are now, what impact do you think this had on the sustainability profession large, uh, writ large? Well, I think it had the impact of, uh, you know, the Academy Award of, of sort of shining a light on it. But it also had a divisive impact, I think, in terms of I don't think we're any closer to having our kumbaya moment from a policy point of view. And so I'm not sure it achieved what it wanted to. Uh, it definitely spurred people into the profession, but I'm just not sure if it spurred the kind of legislation we would have liked to have seen that we thought was possible when it came out. And that may be the inconvenient truth about the inconvenient truth. Thanks, Joel. Thank you, John. So uh, moving right along, literally, you did some (laughs) stories about transportation this week, Lauren. I did. So on the news side, uh, there was the interesting development that the Japanese auto titan Nissan actually named their first chief sustainability officer. He's the former senior vice president, hopefully I'm not butchering this name, Hitoshi Kawaguchi, uh, based in Japan. Uh, He had overseen corporate social responsibility and global external and government affairs, but now he'll be focused exclusively on sustainability. Obviously interesting, since Nissan is one of the many automakers looking much harder now. It's sort of urban mobility, self-driving cars, and the environmental impacts that all of these technologies have. Yeah, it's interesting that, you know, the maker of the Leaf, which is uh, one of the best, uh, the better selling uh, electric cars, is just now uh, having a sustainability director. Do you have any idea why they, uh, what took so long? No, actually, I don't, except that um, sort of the the peer pressure thing, obviously, sustainability has been a big focal point among the big incumbent automakers after the VW scandal. So I saw that pointed to as sort of putting some pressure. Yeah. Interesting. But it was also interesting in the context of an event I headed down to in Silicon Valley this week at SAP, the big software analytics provider uh, that's based in Germany. But they brought together, it's an annual event, it's called Connected and Charged, and they bring together automakers software companies, all kinds of people um, to talk sort of auto tech and what the future of transportation might look like. So what'd you find out? Uh, Well, I was there mostly for, I was talking on a panel about the future of transportation beyond personal cars. So there was Lyft's transportation policy director. There was also the founder of Swift Mile, which is a company that focuses on electric bike sharing and a sort of transportation analytics and aggregation company called Swiftly. So people coming at the issue from very different parts of the equation. And some of the things that really emerged from the conversation were these big daunting questions that sort of hang over the future of transportation. Um, First of all, there's the question of how these different technologies might merge, like shared cars, electric cars, self-driving cars, which has obviously been a topic we discussed at our Verge events as well. Um, And then beyond that, there's the question of how you maybe incentivize sustainability, like the Lyft brought up the possibility since GM has now invested $500 million in them, is there an opportunity to give drivers who don't have their own cars the option to use a GM-owned EV while they're on the job. And then, and, and then the other question that begs asking is, where does public transit fit into all this? I mean, after all this, that's the ultimate shared vehicle. 
Right. That was a huge question. And so a lot of the talk focused on sort of the first mile, last mile part of the equation. Can you really get more people using public transit if they don't have to figure out like how to get the five or 10 miles to the train in the first place? Um, so the Santa Clara Valley Transportation Authority, which is the agency that oversees sort of the sprawling patchwork of transportation in Silicon Valley, um, their chief technology officer was there. He said they are in active talks with Uber and Lyft, as well as the big companies like Google that run their private buses. My friend Dan Sturgis out in uh, Southern California, who's a longtime uh, guru on on mobility issues, he, uh, has described it uh, sort of as the Tarzan effect, where you're swinging from vine to vine. In other words, you're not necessarily where you're used to getting in a car and driving, you know, at home and driving to our destination somewhere. Now you, you know, you might uh, do the first mile on an e-bike or an e-neighborhood uh, electric vehicle or Uber or, to, or somewhere to the tr public transit and then from there to somewhere and then you do that same thing at the other end and you may end up using two or three or four different forms of mobility to get places. And, uh, um, you know, I think we have to get people change their mindset on that. It's not, you know, door to door, car to car, you know, anymore. Totally. That's a big leap. And sort of that whole multimodal or meshed transportation approach was a big focus. And with that, one of the really interesting sort of the obstacles that we're going to have to deal with at some point, it keeps sort of being pushed down the road. But that's uh, who will sort of run these systems? Like could automakers be the ones that are running both the shuttle and the, the bike system that you take to get to your shared car? Potentially, but then that gives them access to so much data. There's a lot of security issues that they'd have to be dealing with. And then you also have internet firms like Google and Apple poking around the space. Um, so, so they could also be in control of a lot of this data. So, I mean, the phrase big brother was definitely tossed around a lot yesterday. Um, and it, it's a lot of interesting things that are going to have to be parsed at some point. Well, the car companies certainly want to be in the business of, of mobility because they realize that the days of, of just selling cars and being done with it are, are, are going to be behind us at, soon, at some point. And so... Uh, and, and yeah, once again, they're going to be uh, looking at some fierce competition. So uh, we'll definitely be uh, going along for that ride. Mm -hmm. And another ride we'll be along for next week <laughs> is the Clean Energy Ministerial. Good transition. As, yeah, tonight. thank you. Thank you. SEM 7, as it is. Yeah, th known. this is this event that... Uh, under the radar, unless you're, uh, you know, sort of been in the thick of it, I still talk to sustainability people who, who weren't aware of this and didn't know this was going on. But this is the um, seventh annual Clean Energy Ministerial. It's a, uh, it's a forum for about twenty three, I think it is, uh, energy ministers from our Secretary of Energy in the in the case of the United States, from uh, obviously around the world. Uh, and the EU um, coming together to talk about uh, how do you accelerate this global transition to clean energy. So the first one of these was in 2010. It's hosted in D.C. and then it's traveled around the world, the United Arab Emirates, the U.K., India, Korea, Mexico. And last May in, at the meeting in Mexico, uh, President Obama, who's really been the driving force behind at least the idea of convening all these, uh, announced that the seventh and his last would be in California, San Francisco to be partic in particular. What's significant about this is that this is really the first of these that since Paris. And so it's kind of, uh, you know, roll up your sleeves and get down to business kind of thing. That's, I guess, a lot of what the conversation is going to be about. 
Also looks like an interesting mix of people. In addition to U.S. Energy Secretary Ernie Muniz, you've got California Governor Jerry Brown, uh, guru on all things environmental and social Lisa Jackson will be part of a public-private action summit. Um, and we'll actually be live streaming one full day next Thursday. So you're talking, you were just naming some of the people who will be at that event on the more public event on Thursday the 2nd, the day before on June 1st. Uh, the there'll be a private meeting for the delegations from from the 23 countries in the EU, and while that's going on, there's going to be sort of like Paris, except a sm- slightly smaller version of that. There's going to be a half dozen or more uh, uh, side events or, or, or concurrent events going on, uh, just all kinds of flavors of clean energy. I know I'm going to be uh, moderating it, two of them. But yeah, on the second, on this all day event, where Lisa Jackson and Governor Brown and Ernie Moniz and a lot of others will be will be talking. Uh, you and I are going to be there, Lauren. Definitely excited for sort of a, a Paris Redux from 8.30 a.m. to 6 p.m. Pacific on June 2nd. We will be conducting interviews, running the live stream, and doing all sorts of things um, from SEM7, which should be very exciting. Um, and you can get more information about that by going to greenbiz.com, where we'll actually be streaming next week. Yeah, it's actually greenbiz.com slash CEM7, and it'll take you right to the page where you can learn more. There's also going to be a showcase component to this as well, right? Yeah, well, the, the main event is in uh, right at the St. Francis Hotel in Union Square in downtown San Francisco and across the street in Union Square itself. There's going to be an enormous tent of some kind that's going to have this uh, showcase where there's going to be, I think, 100 different organiz- companies and organizations showing their technologies and, and speakers and all of that um, and sort of proving their technologies. Um, and I talked to Danny Kennedy, who's now the uh, president of the California Clean Energy Fund, CalCEF, who's uh, going to be opening up the day on uh, on June 2nd, the one we'll be at, Lauren. And um, uh, he's been at the center of, of sustainable energy in general and here in the Bay Area the, as the founder of uh, or co-founder of the solar company, Sungevity. And here's what he had to say about what to look forward to next week. I think this is the first big gathering of governments after Paris, you know, there was obviously the signing ceremony in April in New York, but this is a kind of working meeting that has a strong history of actually getting some things done through the clean energy ministerial process. And now they've kind of got a, a bigger mandate and more political will post Paris to do more on clean energy as a solution to climate change. So it's a key milestone to test whether, you know, they're going to walk the talk, I think. So help for those of us who aren't I don't understand the clean energy ministerial piece. What can it get done or what are you hoping will get done? Effectively, it's kind of like a coalition of the willing of about 23 countries and economies that represent most of the world's greenhouse gas emissions. And these are their energy ministers gathering, not their environment ministers and not their prime ministers or presidents or whomever, but kind of the people in charge of the energy sector, which is, you know, is the, the key driver on global warming issues. They've been working for seven years now they have done some good things with you know fairly arcane stuff like led lighting and hvac for better air conditioning and more energy efficiency and they collaborate by sharing best practice by challenging one another in kind of campaigns or or competitions to install more of something good or, or whatever it may be and um you know hopefully they'll really pick up the pace now that there's kind of been this big promise to get off fossils and get into clean to, to solve the global warming puzzle. Do you think there's any significance to it being in the Bay Area or California? 
Absolutely. I think that the Department of Energy is hosting it here in California because they want to sort of demonstrate the entrepreneurial opportunity that is clean energy. They they want the rest of these world's governments to sort of meet and see some of the startups and companies that are killing it, basically, by going clean uh, in transport and mobility services as well as electricity and energy businesses. So there's a very strong emphasis at this CEM uh, on what's called the Startups and Solutions Showcase, a kind of trade show or circus of success across the street on Union Square where there'll be almost 100 technologies and companies and government departments even and things that have done well at reducing energy consumption and cleaning up the air, those companies will be on show. And the idea was for deployable, commercially ready companies and, and businesses and solutions to showcase their solutions because they want other countries that those are not present in to sort of see them at the Clean Energy Ministerial and adopt them and take them home. And and I think that kind of, you know, Californian can-do entrepreneurial moments is, is what they're looking for with this SEM. So what will you be looking for next week? What can we watch for to see that this was not just a talk fest, that something actually came out of the clean energy ministerial? I think we've got to see more money put on the table for some of the um, areas of focus, you know, that are these uh, pretty, you know, unsexy spaces that, you know, you might not hear about in the mainstream press, but you cover in green biz like energy efficiency and um, heating and, and air cooling businesses. Uh, there will be um, some effort to sort of advance some new uh, challenges between the countries, and I think we'll have to see what they come up with in terms of real measures and, and judge them depending on the outcome. Great. Sounds like it should be uh, a fun week. Exciting. A lot of people coming to town, and um, hopefully they're going to see some of the best solutions that the world has to offer at the, the showcase. And just for all your listeners, that's actually open to the public 10 to 4 on both June 1st and 2nd at Union Square. So 10 a.m. to 4 p.m., you can come in and see it for yourself on Union Square. We'll be there. We're going to be doing some uh, video there and uh, bringing it to the live stream that we're doing during the uh, Public Private Action Summit on January, uh, June 2nd. So right, great. We'll, see you, we'll see you there. Thanks, great. Danny. Okay, Joel. Thanks. By now, you've probably heard us talk about the fact that we are heading to Hawaii next month. Uh, From June 21st through 23rd, we will be in Honolulu for the Verge Hawaii Asia-Pacific Clean Energy Summit. And the goal there is to look at what Hawaii, as the first state to set a time-bound renewable power energy goal by 2045, is actually doing on the ground to work with utilities, to work with energy providers, residents, everyone, all the different stakeholders to, to meet that goal. So this week, our senior writer Barbara Grady took a look at one specific island where Solar City is banking on solar plus storage. So joining us now is Barbara Grady. Hi, Lauren. How's it going? Good. 
So give us a little bit of a breakdown here. What's going on? Uh, we're talking about the island of Kauai. Um, what makes that island unique in the context of Hawaii, which, as we know, overall has very high energy import prices, obviously very vulnerable to climate change, given its yeah. low-lying geography. So Kauai is the northernmost island of this string of Hawaiian islands, and it's pretty isolated. And it has relied on uh, petroleum for a lot of its energy, and that's particularly the case in the evening. They have been very interested in solar energy and renewable energy in particular, but solar because they can't use wind because of wildlife on the island. At any rate, Solar City is coming in and building a 13 megawatt solar array with a battery to store it. 52 megawatt hours battery. Do we know is that a Tesla battery? It is a Tesla. Oh, very yeah. interesting. Yes, indeed. A Tesla power pack. So what are the specific problems that Kauai is trying to solve with this solar play? Yeah, so the utility on Kauai is called the Kauai Island Utility Cooperative. And I spoke with Jim Kelly there, who described the things that the cooperative is trying to deal with. You know, we're different from a lot of other places in that we do have our, our peak demand after the sun goes down. Um, you know, we're a tourist-dependent economy, so we have a lot of hotels, and so people are coming back from the beach and running the air conditioning and taking showers and turning on the lights and that sort of thing. Um, so mm -hmm. our peak is between roughly 5 and 9 p.m. We are the only utility on the island of Kauai. We're a cooperative. We're owned by our members, and unlike most other places in the United States, our power generation comes mainly by uh, burning diesel, which is extremely expensive and extremely volatile. volatile. So in the last uh, seven, eight years, uh, our board has been pushing very aggressively to uh, work to get us off of oil and to get us um, using more renewable resources. We have some um, opportunity already with, with hydroelectric power on the island. Um, but uh, wind is not available because of uh, issues with endangered uh, seabirds. And so we've put, been putting a lot of emphasis on solar. One of the other issues that we're, we're confronting here, not just you know trying to get, um, get off of oil and get off of the, the oil price merry-go-round, is people on an island are very concerned about climate change and the potential effects um, here. So... Every time we're not burning oil, if we're using the solar or if we're using uh, biomass or if we're using hydro, we're, we're not contributing um, greenhouse gas emissions. And, and in fact, this year, um, our gas, it, greenhouse gas emissions, thanks to solar and, and biomass and hydro, will be for the first time below the 1990 levels, which is quite a accomplishment for us. So as you heard, Kauai's big industry is tourism, and the peak electricity demand is in the evening when the tourists come off the beach and start putting on their air conditioning, turning on lights, and so on. So Kauai was very interested in finding a way to take the sunshine and save it and use that for energy in the evening. So it went out and looked for a storage solution. Fascinating. So in terms of the sort of the energy business model here, it sounds like you could be playing an energy demand response. Obviously, you've got the solar 
generation plus the storage solution. What are some of the specifics of how this yeah. all might work? So Solar City's product here is a tied together platform of well, it's a solar array, a 13 megawatt solar array plus a battery, a 15 hour megawatt hour battery, a Tesla power pack, and then a software platform that controls how all the electricity is fed into the system and how it's dispatched. That will include the distributed rooftop solar on the island, and then um, this kind of demand control software algorithm so that it goes out when it's needed. And that's what the Kauai utility liked a real lot, the whole dispatchable part of it. Jim had more details on how they hope this will work. The Solar mm -hmm. City project um, that uh, we're looking at starting uh, sometime later this year um, would involve um, purchasing power from a uh, solar array battery storage project developed by Solar City and Tesla. And this project um, would essentially be different from all other utility-scale solar projects. We have two other main solar arrays on the island that we own. Essentially, what this is going to do is it's going to enable us to use solar electricity at night. And it's kind of the, the holy grail of storage. We've been wanting to get that abundant solar energy we have during the day and move it to the night, which is when we have our peak and what this project enables us to do is basically the solar array, which is a 13-megawatt array, charges the batteries during the day. And then that power is available for us to dispatch just like we do with a conventional generator. At 5, 6 o'clock when we're hitting our peak, we can start running the battery and uh, we can get um, um, 10 megawatts of uh, power for, for roughly 5 or 6 hours. Um, which is going to enable us to use even less oil at night. So in terms of the business case here for Solar City, which obviously has been going through some turmoil with its stock price up down from a high of $62 a share a year ago to more like $20 of late, um, what is sort of the impetus for them? Is there a chance that they could expand this technology more broadly? Yeah. It appears that Solar City is trying to differentiate itself with this product because in recent months, the um, according to like Solar Industry Associations, utility solar has become a big growth area. In fact, growing faster in terms of megawatt hours than residential or anyone else. So Solar City is jumping in in a big way. It's already kind of had this solar plus storage product, but now... It's also offering the solar plus storage plus just, um, DER, you know, demand response management play. And what's interesting about its workings with the island in Hawaii, the Kauai group, is that um, they've been in discussions for months now and like hammering out a product. And it seems to be a test case for a product that Solar City just announced like two weeks ago. So now it's going kind of out there to the whole industry, look, we have this 
this uh, solar plus storage plus distributed energy response. It's interesting. I'm sure we'll see more companies. I know a lot of the ones that are planning to go to Verge are sort of looking at Hawaii as obviously a more favorable sort of policy and regulatory environment, not to mention some of the uh, really intense energy demand and climate issues going on there. Uh, But there are also some more intangible sort of conflicts or barriers that it sounds like are arising where you've got questions over whether power should be locally owned versus brought in by companies from the mainland. So that's something that's obviously not going to be answered with with one deployment like this. Um, But is there anything else you would add about sort of where you're looking for this project to go? Yeah, I think SolarCity will market this to other utilities fairly aggressively because it's a way to bring, to tie together distributed rooftop solar and utility scale solar and storage and demand response and try to get ahead of the market a little bit. And I wouldn't be surprised if other util- other solar companies jumped into the same space. So one of the visitors we've had recently to the Green Biz office is uh, the uh, CEO of the Sustainability Consortium, which at Lauren, as you know, is this group of of about, uh, I don't know, a bunch of company, big companies that make consumer goods um, and their suppliers, the companies like the, you know, Dow's and BASF's that provide the polymers materials that go into products and packaging. I read their fact sheets a lot, actually. They do these cool one-pagers on sort of what the sustainability hotspots are in a given industry, which are really good if you're writing about a particular industry. So you're kind of a TSE geek. And speaking of hotspots, they just put out a, a, their first uh, impact report. It's called Greening Global Supply Chain, subtitled From Blind Spots to Hotspots <laughs> to Action. And so looking at what is the what what are the impacts, the environmental impacts of consumer goods in the first place? And what are the impacts that the uh, Sustainability Consortium members are having? And uh, interesting conversation, and let's listen in. So, Sheila, uh, the Sustainability Consortium has been around for six or seven years. Why put out an impact report right now? Well, this is our first report, and it's the first time that we have data. Um, The consortium, which has been around for six or seven years, spent the first five years really making metrics and getting them piloted. And now they've been implemented 130 some odd billion dollars of retail sales going across our system. And we have data from that. One of the thing, big challenges that you talk about in the report is, is acknowledging that most of the retailers and a lot of the manufacturers just don't have the visibility they need into their supply chains, particularly around agriculture and, and some of those things. How, how is that changing and what is TSC doing to help? Well, I think the big push in the first place is to start asking the questions. So what we're trying to do is enable retailers to work with their suppliers and ask them what's happening in their supply chains. Our metrics take a full life cycle perspective. So if you're selling a food product and it's got agricultural impacts, you're going to have retailers asking their suppliers what's happening on the farm. And that's going to start a chain reaction of beginning to look and get more visibility in supply chains. And that chain reaction begins at the retailer. So you've got Walmart and uh, Sam's Club and Kroger and, and maybe some other retailers. Uh, how are they using this? Are they really enforcing this? Has this become something that you have to do as a, as a supplier to these companies? Uh, or, or is it still, uh, I'll do it and take my chances, or not do it and take my chances? 
I, I think that um, what helps is having Walmart being the first mover. And Walmart's very big. And for many of their suppliers, they're their biggest customer. And when your biggest customer asks you um, questions, it's a good thing to reply. Um, it's helpful now that we're getting a lot of other big uh, retailers. They can ask their suppliers and many of them have already responded. So it actually is one of these things where we get more and more retailers. It becomes just, if all my customers are asking me this, I'm going to do it. So TSC has spent the last six, seven years developing metrics that suppliers to these retailers can, are using to assess their products and drive it further into their supply chain. And this impact report is looking at what the impacts are of that. What was your biggest uh, surprise and uh, takeaway from putting all this together? I think, I mean, you mentioned it, I think, a little bit. It's how much, how little visibility there is in the supply chains. So when we look at consumer goods, the biggest impacts are not actually with manufacturers, you know, the brands that we all think of as going with the products, but they're typically back in the supply chains or some of it in consumer use, but predominantly in supply chains. And most retailers, most um, manufacturers have very little visibility of those impacts, which are where they where they matter most, way back in the supply chain. So how is that going to change? I mean, I I did this uh, some work with uh, re- writing about McDonald's and their and their quest for a sustainable hamburger, and just to learn about how many different routes that uh, a, a beef could travel to, just to end up in one hamburger. It could be multiple cows from multiple countries, even. Uh, I mean, that's incredibly complex if you're trying to create something that, in their case, is called sustainable beef. Do you see that we can you know, get the visibility that will en- enable these companies to make the changes they want? I think we have to begin by asking, right? If you don't ask the question, we're not going to start to get the visibility. It is hard. And the next step then is to go the next step deeper. So some of our members who are manufacturers are using our metrics to survey their suppliers. And we've got to create that cascade um, so that we start to get the market signal that says we want, whether it's a sustainable burger or a sustainable uh, roll of paper towels, and we need to get that message to go from the retailer to the supplier to their suppliers all the way down to where the impacts matter. So we need to begin to untangle that complexity. And the first step is to start to ask the questions and shine the light on what is today blind spots. So just by having uh, a Unilever or Procter & Gamble ask the question of their supplier who then goes to their supplier, that's... It, it, is, it, does that affect change by itself, or is that just at least gives you the information to, to create the baseline? It starts to affect change. I think what we see in the data is there's real bimodal that most, the majority of companies don't have visibility. Some do. Those who do perform really well. Mm-hmm. So once they start on that path, they see the rewards of driving performance on sustainability. So we see the first steps are to start to get visibility. When you see something happening in your supply chain, that's a risk. You start to take action around it and make it better. And in many cases, that can give you much better business results. What's the role of consumers in all of this? Consumers are, I think consumers are really important. In a way, they're driving it. They're not necessarily driving it by saying, I'm going to spend more on a greener product. They want more green products or more sustainable products on the shelves. But what they want is they want to trust their favorite retailer that they're going to stock on their shelves their favorite brands and that those things are going to be sustainable. 
That's what consumers want. And that's, I think, where we're moving. That's where the, why the retailers are responding. They understand that their customers expect this. Unilever just announced this week that the products that they are have are part of their uh, sustainable living program are actually driving a bigger share of their products. They're actually doing much better. Uh, do, you, do, do you does that surprise you? No, that doesn't surprise me. This I think this is exactly where we want to go. Unilever creates many of the mainstream products we love, the products that are on the shelves of you know the retailers that we like to go to, and we want those products to be sustainable. That's what we want to know that the things that we already love are going to be more sustainable. Yeah. Uh, how pervasive is this? Now, we talk about Unilever, it comes up a lot. Nike comes up a lot. A few other companies come up a lot. And, and I think people sort of dismiss that and say, well, yeah, they got Paul Pullman. He's a CEO and he's visionary and, and good for him. And, but, you know, that's, a, that's, that's just one company that I hear about all the time. But it, are there a lot of other companies doing uh, similar kinds of things uh, that just aren't talking about them? I think there are a lot of companies that are doing some great stuff. I think you know about that. You cover them every so often. You know, I get to read great articles. But there are a lot of companies that are a little bit afraid to talk about what they're doing. It's kind of as soon as your head rises above the parapet, it's going to get chopped off. But we definitely see it. A lot of our members are doing tremendous things in sustainability. And we see it somewhat in the data, too. There are, in almost every category, there's companies that are leaders, um, they're companies that score really well on our metrics, and our metrics are hard. They're really hard. The average scores on our metrics are like 30%. They're, they're low. Um, so I think there's a lot of companies out there that can show us the way. There's definitely some best practice. Um, it gives me optimism. Yeah. yeah I mean, I'm just... I've seen this for a long time that companies are walking way more than they're talking. I'm just wondering how that dynamic changes or is that just sort of the way life is that companies, you know, do these things for lots of reasons around demand of their business to business relationships or uh, risk reduction in some aspect. They just don't get to talk about them or is that is that going to change someday? Well, I think maybe I'm a believer in, you know, our system. Our system's based in science. It's meant to be credible. I think the more that we can have things like that that say, here's an objective view, a third party who says this credibly is green, then companies will feel more comfortable identifying with that. Right now, that definition of are you sustainable, people aren't sure. So you can be blown out of the water and say, well, you're greenwashing. So I think we need more and more initiatives like ourselves and, and the work really being based in science so that people can credibly say, I'm doing the right thing. So back to this impact report, is this going to be an annual report? We think so. This is the first one. Um, what's really exciting for us next year is we'll be able to have year-on-year -year data. And, you know, if you want to talk about impact and results, being able to start to move the needle on some of these areas like deforestation or priority chemicals, um, or, you know, waste or CO2, any of these areas, we can start to actually measure it. We can be the barometer to show what's happening in consumer products. And that gets me to what I was going to ask you last, which is simply that what's the story you hope these will tell? I guess it is just moving the needle, or is, is there a bigger story? I think the story, first of all, the impact that consumer goods have is huge. It's 60% of carbon, two-thirds of deforestation. You know, most forced and child labor is sitting in the embedded in supply chains of consumer goods. So what we want to show is that we're making progress on all of that. It is possibly one of the biggest levers that we have to drive sustainability. And it just takes a small number of retailers embedding this and really pushing this for us to change the world. So let's more get more of those retailers on board, right? 
Yes, exactly. Yeah. Great. Uh, we'll look forward to uh, the next report and the one after that and keep seeing that progress. Thank you, Sheila Bonini, CEO of the Sustainability Consortium. Thank you. So this week we had a new installment in a recurring column that we call The Talent Show that is authored by Ellen Weinrep, who is the CEO of the sustainability recruiting firm Weinred Group. The title of this month's article was, Can You Ever Really Retire from Sustainability? Sort of an intriguing topic that I'm sure is top of mind for a lot of professionals in the field. So joining us now is Ellen Weinreb. How's it going, Ellen? Great, Lauren. How are you? Good, good. So this was a fun piece. I actually edited it. And uh, you get into sort of some of the financial dynamics of retirement from sustainability, sort of balancing the work you want to continue doing with maybe doing less work. Um, but what was really the genesis of this piece for you? Well, I had uh, have had conversations with a lot of the people that were included in this article before, and they're still talking with each other. So we decided to bring them back. Um, we had done two articles about them 18 months prior, and I believe it was Scott Nadler, who had come back to me saying that how much that article had resonated with him. And I think it was his advice, advice or recommendation that we have um, a, re, a re, like a, a reunion of sorts. And <laughs> so um, that's where that's that was the genesis of the article. Mm-hmm. So Scott was formerly a partner at ERM. And then you talked to Lynette McIntyre. Uh, who was with UPS and uh, former executives from Green Mountain Coffee Roasters and Baxter. So sort of a broad swath of industries there. Right. And Chuck Bennett from Aveda. That's right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And they're all, you know, when you say retirement or or whatever, you know, they're no longer in their corporate position. Um, all of them have left, left their big corporate job. And many of them are consulting or volunteering um, or yeah, staying engaged in some way, writing books. Uh, yeah, so so there's a range. There's quite the range, which I think is, is really perfect. Right, and that was one component of the article I thought was interesting, this concept of sort of changing the retirement script. I think one person phrased it as more of a graduation than a retirement. So what did you hear about sort of that transition from these folks? Yeah, I, um, that, yeah, they, they, I think many, yeah, there was this a very interesting conversation about why is the word retirement cringeworthy? And they really, you know, and, and some say, you know, if you come from a military background, retirement is a badge of honor. And if you're living in that kind of community, then it's really, you know, you're, you're really respected in your community. And there's others who who assume you're heading to, towards the retirement home, um, you're heading towards death. I mean, the, the, you know, it's it's like, what does it mean? And I think a lot of people have had challenges. These people certainly, in, in terms of coming to terms with with the term, whether to use it or not. Many are electing not to use it, which is fine. Um, and and then some left their corporate job. You know, at UPS, I think you're, you're, you are 
eligible for retirement at like after 20 years. And a lot of people start working there at age 20. So it's not really an age thing at all. There are people who retire from their corporate jobs in their 40s. Um, So it certainly doesn't mean that they have gray hair or that it's their last job. Um, So it means different things at different companies as well. It's an interesting dynamic. And I think it was also prudent that you pointed out in some sense, uh, this group is fortunate. I think the headline or the header there was sort of the lucky ones, because this is coming at a time when there is a lot more talk about people working longer, sort of changing the definition of retirement across the economy. So did that come up in these conversations as well? Yeah, definitely. And and I think they recognized in this conversation that this was a conversation of people who have landed well in whatever they've pursued um, post their big corporate job. And we talked about the courage it takes to leave your, your, your corporate job because you don't really know what's on the other end or your identity is so tied into your corporation and, and your job uh, that, 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 that that's part of your status and your identity. And if you go on, um, p- post that corporate job, um, who, who are you and what are you going to do with your time? So it, it does take some courage to leave. Um, uh, we also heard stories about people who have lost all of their retirement savings in 2008. Um, and that's not a good time to retire when your nest egg has just been depleted by a global financial crisis. So, um, so it's not, you know, it's not a happy story for everybody. It certainly is for this group, though. Mm-hmm. I did also like, though, how you very much confronted the issue of sort of getting paid when you don't have a full-time corporate job. What did you hear about the economics of retirement for these folks? Right. I mean, well, there's some there's some people who've been very lucky, <laughs> you know, cashed in, the company went public and, you know, finally have access to a huge, huge sums of cash. And then um, there were others who who didn't have as much of a nest tag and they have um, shifted their concept. You know, in the in back in the day, they had said, you know, more is better and, you know, wanting to maximize their revenue or their income. And now a couple of them referred to being in a place where they just determine how much they they need, um, not how much they can earn. And then if they change their lifestyle, then they can meet their needs without, um, you know, without breaking their back. And, um, and that just creates a, basically more happiness if you're not struggling all the time. Mm-hmm. And, right. also, you know, and also a reflection on a work-life balance. Uh-huh. That, I'm sure that was sort of a strong undercurrent. I'm also curious, though, have you gotten any reactions to the piece so far? Yeah, quite quite a bit. I've got, received quite a few emails from people who really found that the article resonated with them. I think it was really interesting to hear the, what this job, what difference does it make if you're a sustainability professional leaving your corporate job versus some other working in some other function like the marketing guy or the finance guy? Because sustainability is so much about really your impact, the company's impact on society and the planet. So then if you take your company out of the equation, you're still 
caring about society and the planet. And so many of these people on the phone call were bringing that with them, even if in their post-corporate life. Well, fascinating dynamics in play here. You've got identity, economics, all kinds of things. Ellen Weinreb from the Weinreb Group, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. I've enjoyed the conversation. And that's our 350 podcast for this week. You'll find links to all the organizations, stories, and events we've mentioned in this episode. Just go to greenbiz.com slash 350. Thanks, as always, to podcast director Soraya Melkonian. Send us your feedback, your ideas, and your comments. We'd love to hear from you, 350 at greenbiz.com. We'll be reporting next week from the Clean Energy Ministerial, live from there in San Francisco. And we'll see you back here next week for another edition of GreenBiz 350. From all of us here at Green Biz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time, have a great day.